Hello, and welcome to the 13th episode of Pop Art, the podcast where my guest chooses a movie from popular culture, and I, in turn, will select a film from the more art classic side of cinema with a connection to it. I am your I Have to Return Some Videotapes host, screenwriter, and script consultant, Howard Kasner. For my listeners, please like, follow, or comment on the podcast. Today, I'm doing something different. I actually have two guests instead of just one. They are Tessa Markle and Carolina Alvarez of Film Regard Productions. And they chose the adaptation of Bad Boy author Britt Easton Ellis' book, American Psycho. And I, in turn, have chosen Bad Boy Roman Polanski's atmospheric black and white horror film Repulsion, both concerning characters who, let us say, are going off the deep end a little bit. (laughs) <laughs> to begin, Tessa and Carolina, why don't you tell us something about yourself? Oh, Tessa, do you want to go first? <laughs> sure. So we both came out here from the East Coast to pursue acting. That was about six years ago. We met in an acting class and realized what we were missing in our career and what we thought Hollywood was missing. That's why we created Femregard, which is a production company that strives to tell women's stories from the female perspective to create more opportunities for women in front of and behind the camera. From that came our podcast, Femregard Podcast, where we talk about our experiences with independent filmmaking. Where can you find the podcast? We're available on all the major platforms. could also find us at our website, which is just femregard.com. We're even on YouTube now. Great. Carolina, do you have anything to add? We are just very excited to be here. We're also film enthusiasts. We like period pieces, crime, thrillers. That's why we kind of chose what we chose today, especially because American Psycho is directed by a woman as well. So we're interested to dive into the female female perspective on both of these films. We were pleasantly surprised by Roman Polanski's as well. Great. So I think it'll be an exciting conversation today. So let's get to your choice, American Psycho. I will begin with providing some information about the film. American Psycho was released in the year 2000. It was directed and co-written by Mary Heron, co-written by Guinevere Turner, based on the book by Brett Easton Ellis. It stars Christian Bale, Willem Dafoe, Jared Leto, Josh Lucas, Chloe Savigny, Samantha Mathis, Kara Seymour, Justin Thoreau, Genevieve Turner, and Reese Witherspoon. So why did you choose this film? Going into it, we kind of wanted to pick a film that was either really shows a strong female perspective or was led by female kind of crew. We were just kind of searching lists of movies like that, trying to decide, honestly. And this came up. I was like, oh, (laughs) I didn't even know that was directed by a woman. And I started really thinking about it. And it's deceiving because it's about a man and mostly all men, really. And like kind of how they're all very, what's the word? I'm looking for. I don't just want to say sexist, but well, yeah, narcissistic. But you know, it doesn't come off as a female perspective movie, but really, if you dive in, it kind of is. But on top of that, this movie I hadn't seen in years and I just remembered really liking. And upon rewatching, like now as an adult in my 30s, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can relate to this so much more. I can appreciate it so much more. And when did you first see it? I think I was either in high school or early college. Yeah, I want to say the same. What do you think of it now in comparison to when you first saw it? 
I think personally now, like I said, I can kind of relate to it more. I personally am like a super perfectionist OCD person (laughs) when he's like freaking out about stuff. I get it. (laughs) But I think when I was younger and watching it, kind of like overacted, right? Like, I guess that's entertaining, whatever. And now I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so clever. I love how they did that because they're really just taking those stereotypes and blowing them up. And I think they did it in a really fun way. How I described the acting, it was actually the way many films were acted in the period, but this is much more pronounced and much more stylized. Mm -hmm. It's called postmodern acting. What this means is not only are they playing the character and saying the dialogue, at the same time while becoming that character, they are also commenting on the character and commenting on the dialogue as they Mm -hmm. say it, which isn't easy to do, but it's very, very much of that period. It's kind of meta. (laughs) Yes, I first saw it when it came out. That was 2000. I would have still been in Chicago because I came here in 2001. And I saw it because it was a film basically to go see. And it got very mixed reviews at the time. Though I like parts of it, and we'll get into that, what works and what doesn't work for us, etc. There were many things I did enjoy about it. And it was a very interesting movie, if nothing else. What are some of your favorite moments in the film? I personally love the business card scene. Oh, that's my favorite too. (laughs) So high stakes. I genuinely believe that happens. It's just not as dramatic. (laughs) I can totally see that being a real thing. I think the last person that pulls theirs out, I want to say it's maybe like slow motion or maybe I just imagine that in my head. But I actually, when I was watching out loud, was like, you know, or like, oh my God, or something. I said something out loud. Even I was that into it. Yeah, and I love how like he's like all perspiring at that point too it had such a great build I really yeah I love that moment I'm trying to think I love his like monologues when he's going about music I don't know Tessa if you saw the connection when right before like he killed someone (laughs) or was getting into it was speaking about a certain artist I don't know why but my brain I was trying to like why is he picking this artist I love the idea of him putting on almost, again, a facade, like a normal, like we're just having normal dinner conversation here, nightcap conversation. He does come across as well-read or, you know, well-versed in the music, but I just thought that was always like a fun play to then the horror that came after. I think I have to certainly agree with both of you on those. Those are my highlights. And I think for me, those both define what the film is. And also for me, and later on, we'll get into this again, where the film doesn't quite make it for me. But the business card scene is definitely the highlight. And one of the reasons is you can tell that Paul Allen's card is slightly better than everybody (laughs) else's. Yeah. (laughs) And at that point, not only does Paul Allen have the best business card, he can get a reservation on a moment's notice at a restaurant that everybody else has to reserve months in advance. He Mm -hmm. has the most sought after account in the business he eventually has a better apartment I'm sort of going this guy has to go you have to <laughs> yeah. kill him this is a threat to Patrick Bateman's existential identity I'm sort of on Patrick Bateman's side at this point he's gotta go <laughs> Yeah, he's gotta go he's a yeah, threat yeah, to my existence right uh, or at least a threat to his existential identity which yes he doesn't I love have. that you say that I love that you say this, that because it's exactly yeah. yeah what it is he's mm-hmm. trying to find some identity that he says he doesn't have and there's this threat to it and then also whenever he starts talking about these musicians and the songs it is mm-hmm. so creepy <laughs> Yes. And one of the things also is that I know those aren't his thoughts. 
I know that he's repeating what he's read. These are other people's thoughts. These are the thoughts he thinks he should have. And that is also what makes it doubly creepy because he's talking about something that has no bearing on what's going on. It's similar to when he's also having like dinner conversations with the drug induced woman mistress, his mistress, thank you. Yeah, of the other gent. And she's so out of it, but he's trying again to just he's repeating off reviews, reciting all that about the restaurants he's taking to Oh, you should have the duck or whatever it was the fish, because I've heard it pairs nicely with this. And I read in the papers that this was the best place to be. And he's always doing that actually, throughout the entire movie. And I always thought that was really <laughs> weird and <laughs> funny because <laughs> you know it's not normal. Like, but you wouldn't know if you were just to see this couple like sitting there at the restaurant. Well, that's but, why it's so jarring. I think when you do hear his actual thoughts, there's moments when it, it mm. almost like slows down, and he's like, "I'm gonna fucking murder you," and then you you're like, "Wait, did he actually say that?" Because half the time people don't even react, or they do, but then everything just goes back to normal. He it, chooses the right moments and the right, right. people. To to do that with, I think. Right. Uh, what do you think about the violence and what do you think about the attitude toward women, which has been one of the biggest criticisms of the film? I think it's interesting if you remember, again, that this was directed by a woman because it really is kind of pointing it out, letting you see, like, his secretary, for example, the Chloe Savigny character. This is how women get treated all the time in offices. Yeah, it's a little over-dramatized. This is it. It's not glorifying it, but it is showing it off in a dramatic way. Well, it has been accused of being somewhat misogynistic, even as the leftover from the book. What do you think of that? I mean, I think the characters definitely are, but I think that's kind of the point. To kind yeah, of I know. I was going to say, I was going to say that too. I feel like that's kind of written that way. And I can't say because I haven't read the book, but I assume if, if it's based pretty closely off of it, that that was the male author's intention as well. Like he was aware of and realized those sort of personalities. Speaking of uh, Brett Easton Ellis, he did say an interesting thing about the movie, which I also sort of echo, and this is sort of a paraphrase, but he mm-hmm. says that in the book, everything is ambiguous. Mm-hmm. It's all from Patrick Bateman's point of view. You never can actually trust his point of view or his narrative. He's the unreliable narrator. Mm. And it's just totally 100% ambiguous. But he says once you put it in the movie, it's no longer ambiguous. It becomes literal. And he said then that that muddied the ending. Interesting. What do you think of that? I mean, Tessa and I were talking about this because for me, seeing it the second time, I wasn't quite sure I felt great about the ending. (laughs) I feel like, yeah, it was pretty literal the whole time. And then it became this ambiguous, am I, it kind of fell apart at the end. Like, okay, now it's ambiguous. We don't know if he actually did these things. Well, I kind of would have liked if all the attentions were the entire time, like this for a fact, these were the occurrences that built up to the end and he was slipping up and then going mad and gets his comeuppance at the end. I feel like the ambiguous then came jarring a little bit to me at the end. And I was like, okay, that's that's how I felt. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with that because I think, and I don't know how you would really be able to visually show it being ambiguous. I think that's kind of one of those, how can you put that in film? Whereas in a book, it's easy to do. But, you know, there's moments throughout the whole thing that you're like, wait, did he really just say that? Or like, wait, did that really just happen? But at the same time, it all feels pretty literal he is doing these things he's murdering these people and then at the end that's when yeah all of a sudden he's like at the atm and there's that old lady and then it just completely feels like none of it actually happened like it's all over 
dramatized and you're like, wait, what? And him talking mm-hmm. to his lawyer and then the next day the lawyer's like, but you wouldn't do that. To me, the ending just didn't really make sense. It was kind of out of the blue. It didn't feel true to like him. It's not like, oh, it didn't really happen because maybe he didn't really want to kill all these people or his like anger wasn't there. No, that was like very real. To then be like, yeah, at the end kind of like, oh no, you wouldn't do that. And maybe that's the beauty of it too. It's, he's so badly trying to then prove that he isn't this made up existential persona that he put on for himself. Like he isn't that guy. And so he's really upset at the end. And I could see that actually taking it at that perspective. And like he doesn't end up ever showing the real him. And maybe that's the whole breaking point. And for him to be like, you know what? Fuck it. I am this mad guy and I hate all of you. I do like how in the very end he says, and this is paraphrasing a little bit, but he says, there are no more barriers to cross. All the mayhem I have caused and all my indifference towards it, I have passed. In fact, I want my pain to be inflicted on others. But even after admitting this, there is no catharsis. This confession has meant nothing. So kind of saying, no, it all just was for nothing. I do like how they tied that in at the very end after the kind of crazy ending scene. Well, I think you're hitting a lot of issues also that I felt as well. Mm-hmm. And to me, there is no ambiguity at the end. Once he goes to Paul Allen's apartment and the bodies aren't there and it's all cleaned up and the furniture's mm-hmm. gone, there's no ambiguity. That immediately says that nothing happened. Mm-hmm. It was all... The ambiguity may be whether he was schizophrenic or he just imagined it, mm-hmm. but that starts creating certain problems. One of the problems ha- I had is that as a serial killer, Patrick Bateman is very interesting. As a schizophrenic, he's not. And that then, the ending said, well, everything that was interesting about you didn't happen so you for me i don't find you a very interesting character anymore that's an interesting take on it i i never really thought about it that way the other issue i have when it comes to the violence and the women is that when he starts out he goes after people who are an existential threat to him so when he goes after paul allen i'm going well yeah of course as i said he's got to go yeah (laughs) for me then the movie starts going wrong when he doesn't kill the gay character because the gay character is an existential threat to him mm-hmm. and he doesn't do it. And then all of a sudden he starts killing women, mm-hmm. none of whom are an existential threat to him at all. So all of a sudden he goes from being a serial killer that's killing because of existential threats. He suddenly out of nowhere becomes Ted Bundy. Ah. And I didn't quite understand that switch because then it, for me it becomes a different movie. And I think maybe that's why it sort of may seem to people, whether they understand that this is why it is or not, why Mm -hmm. it becomes misogynistic. Because now he's just killing women because they're women. I can definitely understand that view for sure. I think what I, you know, maybe this is me really searching for this in this, but I think he kind of went for those women because of the people he realized he couldn't quite kill, like Evelyn, for example, his fiance. I think she is a threat to him as well. That's like one line he won't cross. So instead he goes for, I don't remember what the hooker's name was, and these other women that he invites over. But that's not exactly very clear. (laughs) And then there's the scene where he puts the lock of blonde hair in his pocket. And I'm sort of going, that's not being done from Bateman's point of view. That's the filmmaker's point of view. And they're doing it not because Bateman is revealing something about himself. They're trying to throw the audience off. And I think they're breaking the rules that they've set up. They've changed it from a study of someone who's in an existential crisis to fooling the audience. 
It does now that you I love that you brought that up because the way I remembered the movie too from when I first watched it was a more Ted Bundy type film <laughs> for sure like that's all I really remembered of it and that Bateman was hot and I'm like okay let's go <laughs> female gaze we can see <laughs> some sexy men every now and then no but I love that you bring that up because then like this time around watching it I was actually trying to follow that through line of like okay who's he killing and why and Maybe because he also kills the homeless man. These women, he couldn't kill Reese Witherspoon's character mm-hmm. for sure, like Tessa said. I mean, I mean the if, only if, way I could justify is is that, yeah, he was going for people that also were under the radar because he was also... Yeah, it doesn't make sense because they're playing with someone who's either... It's the existential thing or it's the I need to kill thing. And it's not making sense. But then again, are psychopath killers ever really... I agree with you. I I feel like I would have appreciated maybe the meaning of it more if it was solely people who were an existential threat to him. Like if he was mm-hmm. impotent and couldn't mm-hmm. have sex, then they become an existential mm-hmm. threat to him. But apparently he's great in bed, in a way. In <laughs> or a way at least he thinks he is. Yeah. <laughs> apparently. Well, no. I mean, we see that he's great in bed. We see him filming this three-way mm-hmm. he has with these women, and he's going at it gangbusters, and he's having a ton of fun for any guy in the audience. They're going, that is great sex. That was another moment that I wasn't sure was it really happening though. (laughs) You know what I mean? Or was it kind of in his head? Exactly. And that then becomes the other problem. At once at the very end, now we never know what was real or not. It throws everything into ambiguity. So you're right. Did that happen? We don't know. We never see the film and he never shows the film. The other thing, though, also is the ending now shows a plot problem, and that's with the Willem Dafoe character who plays the detective investigating it. Paul Allen will be easy to find. He used his credit cards to buy a ticket to fly to London. Once you check his credit card records, which is the very first thing they're going to do, you're going to see he bought this ticket to London. Mm -hmm. Then you're going to check the airport manifest and find out, yes, he did get on the plane. And then you're going to call London and find out, yes, he got off the plane. This lengthy investigation by Willem Dafoe makes no sense because it would be over in 24 hours. And this would make sense if Willem Dafoe was all in Patrick Bateman's head, but he's not because he interacts with Gene. So once Willem Dafoe interacts with Gene, he's a real character. He's not part of Uh, Patrick Bateman's schizophrenia. I was wondering, though, if kind of their conversations were. If he was a real character, but, you know, what was really going on was he was just going through the normal questioning that they have to do kind of at the beginning of their first conversation, but that the rest of their conversation was what Bateman was kind of imagining he would ask him because a lot of their conversations to me I was like there's no way he would give away all that information to this guy conversations themselves just didn't really feel realistic so that's why I was wondering if even though he was a real character their conversations weren't really what was happening well yes except that Willem Dafoe would never have had the second or third scene with Mm -hmm. Patrick Bateman they would have found Paul Allen within 24 48 hours he probably never would have even come but do you think to question Bateman in the first place yeah now if Willem Dafoe had never interacted with Gene, then he could be a completely imaginary character. So they like broke the rules, I guess. Yeah, they kind they, of, yeah. Either that or, or they didn't think it through. Yeah, I am very curious now to read the book the more.
more that we're pointing out these things because I wonder if there are things that worked in the book world where, you know, it's all you're imagining how it's going to look and how it's going to work versus in the film world where it's spelled out for you. I wonder if those were things that were kind of lost in translation between the two mediums. I think Ellis thought so, and I think you have a point. Point of view can be very difficult in a movie, especially if it's imaginary. It's kind of one of those things that I'm curious to see what Mary Heron was thinking, if she was going back and forth between the imagined and real world and stuff. But like there are kind of certain rules that if they're not followed, the audience is just kind of going to get confused. You you talk about it being directed by a female director. What qualities do you think she brought to it that might have been a bit different than what a male director might have brought to it? As well as the screenwriter, Winifred Turner, because we can't forget the screenwriter. Of course, they're so important. Again, I said uh, from when I was, what I remembered of the film, I kind of remembered the Ted Bundy aspect and then Jason Bateman looking pretty nice. So (laughs) I feel like she did a good job at playing the voyeuristic perspectives on both ends for male and females. I feel like she really directed those shots really well for both audiences. And the way it was written, again, Tessa had pointed out as the secretary to him, just addressing the and dramatizing those sexist issues. I think they did a good job of that. Also, when you're talking about the male and female perspective, it's kind of tricky because it's not exclusive either. You know, like this is a male story from a female perspective and a lot of things overlap. But I think Mm -hmm. the one thing about the perfectionism fitting in and that sort of thing obviously men experience that too like it did not feel forced for him to be going through this and experiencing this having to get his body perfect and all of that kind of stuff but I do think that that's kind of a female perspective thing we are just as women in society kind of conditioned to always feel that way so I think that she hit that nail on the head in the very beginning I love that you point that out too <laughs> well we're making a meme out of this by the way to promote this episode right. the face, and it's going to be like when someone asks me what my morning routine is and it's going to be a shot list of him getting ready and face mask the creams the lotions the potions hello I mean minus the ab workout (laughs) that's pretty much what I do to get ready in the morning (laughs) we have to do all these things to maintain a kind of an appearance of society I mean not everyone of course stands by that for sure (laughs) like I love that you point that out Tessa like we all can relate to that and it's funny because it's a more feminine thing I always tell the boys come on we can all put a little lotion in the morning (laughs) I know it's also tying into the narcissism of his character that he has put on it takes you on that feminine journey of what we have to do (laughs) apparently from what I understand whenever they did the shower scenes the sets suddenly became very crowded with women (laughs) oh I can imagine (laughs) also Christian Bale had a habit of wearing nothing but shoes and a sock uh, for much of the filming. Uh, Probably no complaints. Uh, and he would work out three hours a day. He had a trainer on set. He also worked out for a long time before that. And when it was over, he said, I'm oh sick to death God. of eating effing chicken breast. Yeah. I think I remember hearing about that too, the chicken breast. You, yeah, he had to train really hard to maintain that for sure. Have you seen Mary Heron's other films? No. Actually, yeah, I personally, I haven't. I don't no. think I have. Well, let me see. I highly recommend I Shot Andy Warhol with Lily Taylor, which is okay. based on, on a real person who did shoot Andy Warhol. Mm-hmm. A spoiler alert, she didn't kill him. <laughs> she was, a, I guess what you'd call a radical feminist lesbian. Lily Taylor gives an incredible performance. And then Mary Heron did The Notorious Betty Page, which is about the pinup girl okay. in the uh, 60s, which was also a very interesting movie. 
movie. Highly recommend her as a filmmaker. What do you think is the lasting impact of American Psycho? I think especially when it came out, we weren't really talking as much about the way that, I guess, just like the sexism in the office, but it wasn't even just, you know, male versus female, just the way people treat each other. It's like there's a quote whenever Bateman says to Gina's secretary, like, don't wear that again. You're prettier than that. Things like that that we've seen in a few movies, like nine to five. <laughs> you know, right. I just rewatched that movie, actually. But it wasn't really like a mainstream thing that people were admitting in movies. I think that and like the perfectionism and even the business card scene, it was all stuff that people weren't really admitting actually happened. Sure, it was done in this stylized way, but I think that's something else um, too that Mary as a woman was brave enough to do that maybe some men wouldn't have been to really address that. Like, hey, (laughs) this is what's happening. I also feel along those lines, I think right around the 90s into the 2000s, that's when because I listen to a lot of murder podcasts (laughs) Um, people were also the poor and the prostitutes that were getting murdered people in the public sides that you typically don't get found because they're just not on the radar as much so a lot of the mass killings that happened back in the 80s they weren't caught for decades because they were just under the radar a lot I feel like that's also interesting to see on film great I think I will conclude with some further information and notes. It cost $7 million to make. It made $34.3 million at the box office. David Cronenberg was originally going to direct it, but he didn't want to direct anything that took place in a restaurant, and he didn't want to direct any of the violence. And eventually, <laughs> it didn't go anywhere. Oliver Stone was going to direct it with DiCaprio. DiCaprio finally bowed out to do The Beach. You'll recognize Justin Thoreau, who is one of the friends. He has the lead in the TV series The Leftovers. The gay character played by Matt Ross. People were recognized as the evil Gavin Belson Silicon Valley. (laughs) Gwyneth Turner, who wrote the screenplay, is in the movie. She plays Elizabeth, who was the friend at the end that he murdered along with the prostitute. And a bit of irony, Gloria Steinem did not want the movie made. She hated the book. She was against it. She might have even been one of the people who helped convince DiCaprio not to do it. She later became Christian Bale's stepmother. So with that, let's move on to my choice, which is Roman Polanski's uh, Repulsion. Uh, First, some information on the film. It was released in 1965. It was directed by Roman Polanski, written by Gerard Brock, David Stone. The story was by Polanski and Brock. It stars Catherine Deneuve, John Frazier, Patrick Weimark, Yvonne Fernou, Valerie Arfurniex. These French names. I have to stop doing these things. (laughs) in them because I never know how to pronounce their names. Valerie Taylor, Helen Frazier, Renee Houston, James Villiers, Hugh Fletcher, and Mike Pratt. The basic premise revolves around a young woman from Belgium living in London with her sister. She is socially awkward, shy, and is very uncomfortable with men, especially if touched. When her sister goes away for a holiday, she slowly descends into madness. So when did you first see the movie? Uh, this was both of our first times when you suggested it. We, neither of us had actually heard of it before before. Correct. And what did you think of it? My immediate response to it was, wow, for a Polanski film, I was surprised how feminist it felt, actually. And I feel like that's just a modern day, like Tess and I were talking about, it's probably more of a modern day interpretation of it. 
versus when it first came out and probably what it yeah. what his intention was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, actually really liked this film and like what it was showcasing. Mm-hmm. I first saw it, not when it was released, but I was in college and I found it very entertaining. I think I have a different feeling toward it now because this is probably the third or fourth time that I've seen the film. When you first see it, in many ways, I thought, well, this is just a horror film. It feels a bit exploitational in a way of exploiting this person's descent into madness. But the more I see it, and not only does aesthetically, it becomes a lot more interesting. It looks great. It looks really interesting. But you get more into what's going on with the central character. And you sort of start realizing why these things are happening to her. Right. And it becomes less and less of a horror film, though it still retains that aspect to it. It becomes deeper. Yeah, I definitely think it's one of those that on the surface you're like, oh, this part's kind of creepy or, oh, wait, this man is coming out of the wall and does feel like a very horror film kind of thing. But then if you really look for like, why are these things happening or what is happening to her? Is she going crazy and all that? Yeah, like you said, it becomes deeper and it becomes a lot more psychological and a lot less just horror like slasher or ghost or anything like that because it's all coming from her descent into madness. But I think there's like a deeper also reason and why which is interesting at least like when you start to think about it more too why do you think this happens to her? I think, are we giving away spoilers here? <laughs> yes, yes, we spoiled American Psycho as it was. With, uh, yeah. <laughs> but no, you can spoil away. Fabulous. I guess there's a couple Easter eggs that are scattered throughout the movie. I think the first one is the indication from the beginning and the end. I didn't catch the beginning um, showcase of this was the photo of her and her dad and the oh, family yeah. photo. I didn't see it at the beginning. I missed that, but I definitely saw it was a very like last shot which then sealed the deal for me and I like things that are more based on reality in general like films like that and stories so to me I'm always like okay what's the logical reason to her madness and so thinking about it I'm like okay like there was maybe an abuse a sexual abuse because she's looking very sinister but also like in my point of view it's like angrily at the father like she's mm-hmm. upset okay there must have been some misconduct there and that's why she's so repulsed as one would be from sexual abuse. And then the second Easter egg is the cracks, how that builds throughout the film. The cracks Um, on the wall. Right. And the nuns is another. She doesn't want to fit into this world where, yeah, she has to put out. That's what I think Roman was trying to do. She was just like, I don't want to fill my feminine concourse. She was just repulsed by Ben. But I think the deeper message is maybe her purity was taken away. And so now she's longing for that. everything just starts to build. Like Tess and I kept talking about it. These men who are so annoying and yes. and rapey the entire film. Yes, they are. <laughs> that yeah. was one of the first Even the nice ones are. Even the yeah. nice ones are. Like, go away. Leave the girl alone. Well, that's what's interesting, too, about watching it from our point of view as this generation versus when it came out, how we seemed so feminist. And at the time, it didn't have that intention at all. But it's moments like that with these men in the one scene where he breaks the door down Yes. (laughs) from his point of view he's like well I'm just checking on you and I I just wanted to have dinner with you meanwhile we're like oh my god this guy is breaking into our house what the hell yeah I think perspective on those things really really changes depending on your gender your generation all of those things 
you say a lot of interesting things there. I especially like the thing about the picture because when you first see the picture, you don't notice anything that mm-hmm. unusual mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. And then at the very end, it's like the movie mm-hmm. or a couple of other movies where all of a sudden, it's like the movie The Conversation where early on they say a line and it sounds like one thing. Then after you go through everything in the movie and you hear the line again, you realize they were actually saying something completely different. I think that adds that when she has the scenes where the man comes into her room and attacks her, I don't think you could call that total fantasy. I think she's reliving past trauma. Right, I agree. And you're right about all the men are so rapey. She walks down the street and the workmen basically ask her to have sex. Colin, the nicest one in it, he (laughs) keeps saying that he's only interested in her because he's interested in her, but you know very well that he wants to have sex with her. That's really... That's really what he's getting at. Her sister's having an affair with the married man and the landlord you know oh my god the landlord says if you'll sleep with me you won't have to pay any rent that was the only scene that surprised me i think honestly i was like wait what him too he's that bad you also have to add to it that she's a stranger in a strange land in the making of the film neither polanski nor deneuve could speak english what deneuve she doesn't have many lines but she sort of has to say phonetically and ron polanski always had to have a translator and you do have the nuns in the background where she's constantly reminded of her background in Catholicism. It's just always there. It's that classic Catholic guilt. And you have her friend at the, the beauty salon who is crying because of her boyfriend with the implication, I think, is that she's pregnant. This is a movie in which the women are constantly under sexual aggressiveness by men. And if they're not outright dangerous, they're just really annoying. (laughs) And then you get little things that for most people would not have a sexual connotation to them. But when the sister's boyfriend inserts his razor into a cup, that's very sexual. Subconsciously, she sees that as a very sexual act. When you put a key into a lock, when Mm -hmm. he breaks down the door and enters, it's all a metaphor for sex. It's like these little things that are slowly triggering in her head, too, like these visuals right. that Polanski is capturing. Hits the point where then arms are coming out of the out wall. Of the wall. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was terrifying. For me, I, I so jumped when the guy first came out of the closet. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, <laughs> now I'm awake because it was oh, kind of slow for a minute. It's like, we see where this is going. When she sees the man in the mirror. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what like, I meant. Oh, that was just, creepy. I think that's the first moment too that you really because I think maybe the wall had cracked once before that or something but we didn't get a lot of crazy stuff happening and I think that was the first moment when you're like oh wait something's going on here Oh, and can we just have a moment about the damn rabbit? What was it? Is there some symbolism to the rabbit? I was wondering if that was like another Easter egg, other than how sick and unwell this girl was, or she just let everything sit and rot. Well, rabbits are symbols of sex. I mean, of having children. Oh, like fertility. I don't know if that is it. I'm a little puzzled, too. I don't Mm. think I fully... Well, it could also be a metaphor for her, because in many ways, she's a timid rabbit, and and then the rabbit gets Aww. its skin pulled off so that it's nude. And mm-hmm. then it starts decaying just like she does. Oh, sad. I like the shots, though. I thought those were fun um, that he played with, though. I feel like he did a really good job taking in those little symbolic shots of everything and, and the cracks. I don't know if I'm recalling it correctly. I think the first time I noticed a crack was actually on the sidewalk, right? Wasn't she yes. just staring at it? Mm, and I love right. that that's like the very first sign of like something is off. 
she slowly starts to be out of it. So I, I love that that was like almost the first time too. She's staring at this crack in the sidewalk and then it carries over into her living quarters. Polanski's just really good at, uh, I don't know how I want to say this, but creating narrative films that have an art feel to them, if that makes sense. I didn't realize how many films I really enjoyed were directed by Polanski. I didn't know how much of a fan of his I was because he's really good at that. He's really yeah. good at making something feel like it's total art house, very abstract, but still putting beauty to it. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I just love that. Yeah. It might also be noticed this was the beginning of postmodernism in a way came into mm. American filmmaking. Filmmakers were taking genres that many ways they would never touch in the 40s and 50s, like sci-fi, more low-budget thrillers, yeah. horror films, and went out of their way to make them. You have things like 2001 A Space Odyssey, Hitchcock Psycho, which came mm. out before Repulsion, like Close Encounters Third Kind and The Horror with The Exorcist. Then you have Roman Polanski who does this. He also mm. does Rosemary's Baby. Yeah, he, I love Rosemary's Baby. I know, that's one of my favorites. And so he does good. Chinatown. I love he, Chinatown. And he makes a horror movie out of Macbeth. Oh, have not so, seen that. I haven't uh, too. <laughs> it's a really interesting interpretation of the play. And then, of course, he goes into exile, which me almost destroyed his career, though I don't feel all that sorry for him <laughs> because he dug his own grave. But he is one of the major American filmmakers. And this was his first English language film. He made and a feature film in Poland, Knife in the Water, which is very good. He didn't want to stay in communist Poland, so he goes to uh, France and then England. He makes Repulsion so he can make enough money to make cul-de-sac. And then he makes the vampire killers. Um, so pardon me, but my teeth are stuck in your neck, which is a terrible film. That's where I met Sharon Tate. Then he comes to America where he just has a string of excellent films and then he just blows it. I think I, when I was reading about it too, uh, Repulsion, wasn't this the first film to ever have a woman featured as a killer too? No, there have been tons of female killers. It mm. is the first depiction of a female orgasm to be passed by the British censors. <laughs> okay, maybe interesting. <laughs> I thought that's what you were going for. She hears her sister off screen. You know, because before this, female orgasm didn't exist. You knew that, right? Right. There's no such thing as a female oh, yeah. orgasm. I'm yeah, gonna have you seen many Catherine Deneuve films? My mom is, so now I feel like I need to get on this train. You definitely need to get on the Catherine Deneuve train. She is one of France's greatest film stars, and she's made a lot of wonderful films. And certainly, you have to see The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, one of the five greatest musicals ever made. I think, have you seen Belle du Jour? I'm like looking briefly. Yeah, there's Belle du Jour, which she did with Louis Vignel, and she worked with all sorts of filmmakers. I give very frustrated in the U.S. because in France, you'll have filmmakers who will write films specifically for female actors. Not only would Catherine Deneuve seek out new filmmakers to work with, you have filmmakers like André Techenet who will write films just for Catherine Deneuve. There's a couple of other directors. True, Isabel Hooper was the same way, Isabel Ajani. In America, ever since Woody Allen, who mm -hmm. has probably been the last one, you don't really see that very often. The closest is Quentin Tarantino with Uma Thurman, but one of the reasons why female actors in the U.S. have a much bigger problem, especially transitioning in age, than they do in places like France, where the filmmakers actually make film with the purpose of starring. Yeah, that's very and interesting. Wonderful actors. 
I will end with some notes on the film. Mm-hmm. It cost 65,000 British pounds to make and made $31 million. The cinematography is by Gilbert Taylor, who also did Dr. Strangelove and oh. Hard Day's Night. Mm. And he got a BAFTA nomination. Ian Henry, who played the sister's boyfriend, was in the first season of The Avengers. He actually had Pat Billing on The Avengers and then <laughs> left it. And then Patrick McNee took over completely. John Fraser who played Colin was in the trials of Oscar Wilde the good movie about Oscar Wilde (laughs) Peter Finch and he played Lord Alfred (laughs) Douglas and James Villiers he's the friend in the bar the tall one he made a career out of playing upper class twits oh he did a good job you can see him in murder at the gallop the ruling class and under the volcano so in closing out is there anything else you might want to say about this film or american psycho or both films i just love that you chose this film to pair with american psycho because love how they both make you question what's in their head what is real what is a driving them crazy and b driving them to actually like commit these murders and and do these things it's all so psychological and goes so much deeper. It's fun that this film is actually called Repulsion because <laughs> I feel like that's kind of what the theme of Bateman's character in American Psycho is. Everything is driven by his repulsion. Yeah, I, the, everything that she said. I always enjoy analyzing the madness in a character. I love that you chose Repulsion because I really felt like, in a way, it was kind of better done <laughs> than <laughs> in American Psycho. Like seeing the clear dreamline of that, like I feel like there's enough Easter eggs, and I really enjoy that. Yeah, I love reanalyzing American Psycho in that way and seeing another film that kind of could compare to that. Like, I, I that was really fun and something older. It's a, like, I was like, wow, this is much more of a female gaze than American Psycho. Like, I was really surprised. But didn't you say, Carolina, that you had read somewhere something about Palance, someone asking him that, and he said that really was not his intention? Oh, no, no, absolutely. Yeah, yes. no. I I was surprised that it came off more. (laughs) I think originally it was probably supposed to be more of a metaphor Mm -hmm. for Roman Polanski's difficulty in living in London. And once he chooses a woman as the protagonist instead of a male and then gets in another writer as well, then if he's going to be true to the character and really explore the character, it sort of becomes much more feminist, whether he attended to or realized it. Right, exactly. I I love that. Looking at it from our perspectives, we see this. Mm -hmm. In closing out, I asked you to choose a film or two that might go with the choice you made. So we had a couple things in mind. We mentioned The Shining because it has to do with his slow descent into madness, which then drives him to violence. But we really liked the idea of comparing it to Black Swan. You get the American Psycho comparison where she's driven to madness because of her need for perfection. You also get the repulsion of she is repulsed by Mila Kunis's character because she isn't perfect. So it really like ties both films together, I think, with that whole slow descent into madness kind of idea. Yeah. And then lastly, I thought of Dress to Kill, Brian De Palma's film, the 1980 film. And I thought that did also touches on a a psychiatrist who's going crazy because he's trying to kill a part of himself that he's repulsed by because he's transitioned into a woman and he's trying to kill the part of him that still has a sexual desire for women. Those are great choices. 
For me, I will first choose a film called The Snake Pit, a mm. movie made in the 1940s, I believe, starring Olivia de Havilland. This is one of the earliest and most realistic look at people in a mental hospital as mm. Olivia de Havilland starts having emotional and mental issues. The other one I will choose is Ingmar Bergman's Face to Face with Liv Ullman, which is about a woman who, after being sexually assaulted, starts having mental breaks with reality. Ooh, interesting. I'll have to add both of those to my list. Face to Face is just a magnificent performance by okay. uh, Liv Ullman. Also, mm-hmm. Olivia de Havilland, it's one of her greatest performances as well. So what is next? What should we be looking out for from YouTube? Currently, uh, we're putting out season five of our podcast, FemRegard Podcast. So episodes are coming out uh, every Friday of that. And then in the near future, we are currently writing a neo-noir, femme-noir, we like to call it. So we're looking forward to filming a proof of concept for that and eventually the feature film. That sounds very exciting. Do you have a name for it yet? It's Cerca la Donna, which translates from Italian to look for the woman. Oh, great. Is it going to be influenced by Gaio films? Um, a little bit of Fellini, actually, but it's got that uh, more of a Scorsese mob because it's set in Hollywood. But there's a very Italian head of the mafia in there. So, yes, you're going to get some strong Italian origins. As for me, I'll go through my usual litany. I am a script consultant, so I have a script consultation Facebook page under my name, Howard Kastner Script Consultation. I have a blog called Rantings and Ravings, which covers issues of screenwriting and film. I have two books of short stories on Amazon, The Starving Artist and Other Stories, and The Five Corporations and One True Religion. These are sci-fi, horror, and fantasy short stories. The latest edition of my screenwriting book, more rantings and ravings of a screenplay reader. It's also on Amazon. I'm an amateur photographer. You can find that all on Instagram. Last time, Pop Art covered the two movies, Die Hard and District B13. The next episode will be Dumb and Dumber. And <laughs> Too Late for Tears. We all know Dumb and Dumber. Too Late for Tears is mm-hmm. sort of a cult film noir from the 1950s. Both are about people who end up with a bag of money suddenly <laughs> in their procession. <laughs> Fun. So once again, I would like to thank you two for being guests on my shows. It was great. Yes, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. And it was so fun to revisit American Psycho and to discover Repulsion. Yeah, agreed. That was so fun. Great picks. Thank you so much. Thank you.